0: You're listening to the Bible Teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord.
1: All right, let's not waste any time, guys. Let's just dive into the deep end. And I'm going to do that by uh, beginning with a quote by George Orwell. He said this, I thought of a rather cruel trick I once played on a wasp. He was sucking jam on my plate and I cut him in half. He paid no attention. Merely went on with his meal while a tiny stream of jam trickled out of his severed esophagus. Only when he tried to fly away did he grasp the dreadful thing that had happened to him. It is the same with modern man. The thing has been cut away. The thing that has been cut away is his soul. The thing that has been cut away is his soul. And in this rather graphic Uh, illustration, we are offered a picture of people today feasting away at whatever delights may be accessible to them, so distracted by these temporary pleasures that we don't realize the wounds that we have received, that we don't understand the severing of our souls that's occurred And it's only when we go to take flight, it's only when we go to move forward, do we realize the dreadful thing that has occurred. But not only is this a fitting description of people in general today, but sadly, this can also serve as a description of none other than Jesus' church. And this is what we see here in Revelation chapter 2. The church today, just like the first century church in Pergamum, has the tendency to become so preoccupied with the things of this world that we end up forfeiting our very soul in the process. Now, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, Revelation is a letter and a series of letters written to seven churches in the first century, churches that were struggling with the question of their identity, churches that were struggling to live in to the truth of who God had made them in a world that was not making it very easy for them. And Pergamum was a church living in a place of severe cultural pressure. This was a church that was beginning to allow their identity as God's set-apart and holy, beloved people to be undermined through compromise, allowing who they were to be shaped by cultural values, cultural values of sex and money, and idolatry, and power. And so Jesus, who loves his church, and is always committed to her good, writes to them to call them back out of this dire place. And as we read these words, we hear stern words, don't we? We hear things about like swords, and we hear strong language, but what we need to remember is that this is a letter from Jesus to his church, and if Jesus is speaking to his church, Jesus is always relating to his people as a husband relates to his bride. He's coming from a place of covenant love. This is not the letter, a letter from a God who constantly needs to be appeased. This is a husband who has been wounded in his heart and is now writing strong language to his bride to come home. It's raw, it's brutally honest, it's extremely serious. But it's a sincere urging of his people to come home. It's a reminder of who they are. And maybe even more importantly, it's a reminder of whose they are. A reminder of whose we are. And so this letter follows the same sort of basic pattern that we see in all the rest of the letters. It begins with a reminder of who Jesus is. It's followed by an encouragement about what God sees in the church going well. Third, we see a warning, something Jesus is identifying specifically in that church that they need to be mindful of, a stern warning in the case of Pergamum this morning. And then finally, there's the promise. The reminder, the encouragement, the warning, and the promise. Let's begin with the reminder. Now, of all the churches receiving these letters in the book of Revelation in the first century in this area here, The church in Pergamum was probably the one experiencing the most cultural pressures to compromise who they were. To sort of abandon their identity as God's people and to kind of go with the flow of society. In fact, Jesus recognizes the pressure that they're in and he identifies the city as Satan's throne. (laughs) No other city gets this title of Satan's throne. This is Jesus saying, I know it's difficult where you are. This is a place of severe Pressure and severe attack. And so, a little bit of history here. Pergamum was home first to the temple dedicated to Zeus, who was at the time and probably is still today one of the most iconic of the ancient gods. This was a figure that symbolized power and strength. Uh, There was also a shrine to a healing god. And it became a place, uh, a sort of hub of alternative medicine where people would come from all over the place, bringing their sick to sacrifice on the altars here in order to find healing. And so it was making advancements in not only technology and medicine, but also it was intermingled with these sort of pagan practices. Uh, It had one of the most extensive libraries around at this time with, it's believed, over 200,000 parchments, 200,000 books, essentially serving as a center of learning and education. And what they did there was they mingled sort of Greek philosophy with cult teachings. There was also the temple of Dionysus, which was the goddess of wine. And so people would come here for their drinking parties and their entertainment. There were brothels almost on every corner. There were sex parties in homes. There were temple prostitutes uh, at your leisure. Pergamum was essentially like if you mixed Washington, D.C., Harvard, and Las Vegas all into one city. It was just all packed into one place with all the trappings that come along with each of those places. And then to add to this pressure, the the pressure to fit into society, there was severe pressure from the Roman Empire to not only worship the pagan gods there, but to worship the emperor. And to not participate in all of the sort of sexual escapades and the pagan practices that were mixed into this whole equation of worshiping the emperor and worshiping these gods, it would cost people. It would cause them to be excluded from participating in these really strong trade guilds. In Pergamum, it sort of functioned like how uh, unions, trade unions, work today. If you were not a part of the trade guild, you were not doing business. And if you were not doing business, you were out of money. And so in order to participate in the trade guilds, you had to participate in these pagan practices of worship. And so if you didn't, Not only were you not fitting in with society, you were losing your money, you were losing your opportunity to earn. It would cause the people around you to begin to be suspicious of you. What are you doing? Why don't you join us? Is there something wrong with what you're doing? Why are you trying to to change the way that we do it around here? And then like for some, as Jesus mentions here, it would even potentially cost you your life. And so it's into this place, into this pressure that Jesus reminds his church of this. Look with me in verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Simply put, the one who holds the sword is in control. This is a symbol of power. And at the time, uh, to hold the sword... To be the bearer of the sword meant that you were the individual that had the authority to judge. You had the authority to lead. And ultimately, you had the authority to execute capital punishment. And so here's the reminder that would have been like a breath of fresh air to the church in Pergamum. Jesus is essentially saying, it's me, not Rome, that holds the power of life and death. It's me. I hold the sword. See, because Jesus died and he rose again, and Revelation 1 tells us that when he rose, he rose with the keys of death and Hades, what that now means is that the power of life and death are his and his alone. And because Jesus lived a life that we could not, and he died the death that we deserve in our place, he now has the power to give or to withhold life, to offer us life and to withhold it. He's saying the emperor is not the one in charge. Rome's not the one with the sword. I am. I'm in control. I'm in control of your life. I'm in control of your community. I'm in control of your future. I'm in control of your destiny. I'm in control of your eternity. I'm in control. What Jesus is essentially saying is that they can promise you a good life, but only I can offer you a life worth living. Only I can offer you a life that is true and lasting. They may even kill you, but I hold your eternity in my hand. Rome barks, but I speak life. He reminds the church of who he is. Secondly, we see an encouragement here. Look at me in verse 13. I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Now this is a repeating statement that Jesus makes here. I know, I know, I know. If you remember what this means, it means Jesus is saying, I see, I acknowledge. I acknowledge what you're dealing with. I acknowledge your life. I acknowledge your community. Uh, Recently, Michelle and I have been working through a very challenging uh, parenting issue. And there have been seasons where we have tried to describe it to people. And there were moments where I felt like, are we the ones who are going crazy here? Are we the only ones that see this? Is it really this hard to explain what a weight this is, what a challenge this is, what a burden this is? And sometimes I would feel like I was the crazy one. Like I was, am, am I missing it? Am I just seeing this wrong? And so we had a family member who stepped in to help in a really involved way. And after that time, she simply told us, I see what you're saying. And I can't tell you how profound and encouraging that statement was. When I, We thought we were the crazy ones. Are we the only ones seeing this? And, and, and she steps in and is like, you're not crazy. I see what you're dealing with. I see the weight of this. And this is exactly what Jesus is doing. He's saying, church, you're not crazy. You're you're not missing this. You're, You're really going through it. I see exactly where you are. I see the hardships that you're enduring. I see the pressures that are on you. I see the pain that you're experiencing. This is the encouragement for us. Jesus has his eyes on people who are in difficult situations. Jesus says, I see you in that difficult relationship. I see you in that difficult job. I see you in that difficult ministry. I see you bearing that difficult burden. I see you, church, living in that difficult city. I see you. I acknowledge you. And so what Jesus recognizes and commends about his church is even though they are in the midst of such a difficult place, they have remained loyal to him. He says, you are holding fast to my name. You still profess me as king. You still profess that I am Lord, even when it is costing you severely. So there was a custom in this, uh, in this place, a law of the land, that when you address the emperor, you would address him like this, my God and my Lord, or my Lord and my God. And yet there was a man, and probably among others, named Antipas, a Christian, who said, Nah, not gonna do it. And so, church history tells us because he refused to acknowledge that the emperor was ultimately God and Lord, it was gonna cost him his life, and he was on trial. And while he was on trial, the people being so gracious, they gave him an out. They said, All right, we're gonna cut a deal with you. All you gotta do is take a little pinch of this incense. And scatter it over this pagan sacrifice and say these three very simple words. Caesar is Lord. Easy peasy. And in the grand scheme of things, it's no big deal because you can, we're still going to allow you to worship your God. We're still going to allow you to be a Christian. You can still go to church, still sing, still give, still serve, do all that Christian stuff. All we're asking for is a small pinch, just a little compromise. And you can live. And Antipas responds and he says, my loyalty is not with the emperor, and my loyalty is not with the empire, my loyalty is with Christ. And what I have found is not only is he worth living for, he is worth dying for. And so they roasted him in a brazen altar like a slab of meat. And not only did this occur in his life, but they made it a public spectacle so that everyone could see what it would cost you to be loyal to Christ. And so, what Jesus recognizes and now encourages them in is that even in the midst of such a frightful sight, could you imagine the government plucking one of our church members and roasting them for Christ? How many of us would show up that next Sunday morning? How many of us would continue to stand in the name of Jesus Christ and what Jesus recognizes is that you have not renounced your faith in me. You remained when it would have been so easy to flee, so easy to run away, so easy to go somewhere else where the pressures were far less severe. But despite this loyalty to the Christian faith that is commendable, Jesus also warns them, Which leads us to our third point, the warning. Look with me in verse 14 through 15. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. Who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. So that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. So I'm going to give sort of the big idea here and then we'll work backwards on what I think Jesus is saying here. Jesus is essentially saying, I desire more than your profession of faith. I'm commending you that you still continue to say in the workplace or in your homes or in your friendship circles, where it is difficult, I am a Christian. I'm commending that. I don't want less than that. But I'm calling you to more. I desire your fidelity in our relationship. I'm grateful that you have not removed my ring, he's essentially saying, but you wear my ring when you're in bed with other lovers. And you say that you love me, you confess that you love me, but you stepped out on me, and you ask any married person, partial fidelity is infidelity. And this is at the heart of Jesus' warning here. And in order to illustrate it, Jesus draws from some of the history of Israel as a nation and some of the biblical history that we find in the Old Testament. And specifically, he draws from the strategy of a man named Balaam that's found in the Old Testament account of Numbers. In the book of Numbers, we read about how the Israelites have just come out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery and bondage for hundreds and hundreds of years. They're passing through the wilderness. God is bringing them into the land of freedom, into the land of Canaan, and they're passing by these different tribes and these different people, and they're passing by a nation called the Moabites. And the Moabite king named Balak hates them, and he hated to see this nation flourish. So he gets this idea. He calls upon a shaman. The Bible refers to him as a prophet, but he's not a Hebrew prophet. He's sort of like, I don't know, some sort of prophet. We don't know really what kind, but he's like a a shaman of the area. And he sends men, to Balak, I'm sorry, Balaam, and he asks him, essentially, here's what I need you to do. I need you to incite a curse on the Israelites. And so Balaam, Balaam responds to the, to, the, to the men and says, send back word to your king. No, I'm out. I can't do it. I'm not your guy for the job. And so Balak responds again, and he's like, no, 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 listen, listen. I'll pay you anything you want. Whatever you want, I'll give you riches. I'll give you whatever you want. All I simply need you to do is curse this people, easy peasy, get it done. And Balaam says, I don't think you understand. I can't curse them. I can't. They're God's people, and they're a blessed people, and I can't curse what God has blessed. I just can't do it. But then he finds a loophole. This is where the story gets interesting. He essentially says, if you can't defeat them from without... Let's figure out a way to defeat them from within. And this is a battle that's not going to be fought on the battlefield. This is going to be a battle fought in the bedroom. And so Balaam looks over the people from this hillside. He looks over the Hebrew people. He gets an idea. He turns to the king, and he says, I got an idea. Build a bunch of temples. I'm sorry, a bunch of altars for sacrifice here. And I can guarantee you it's just going to be a matter of moments before I've got them up here worshiping to your God's. Essentially, the idea was this. While I can't get God to curse his people, I can get them to bring the curse on themselves. And rather than fighting them or cursing them, they enticed them. And they sent a bunch of Moabites, the finest, Moab's finest women, into the people to sleep with Israel's men. And when they were overcome with their lusts and overcome, they were drunk on love. They were lured up to the altars. And like he anticipated, God's people were sacrificing on the altars of pagan gods. Now, here's the interesting thing. Let me, let me note this first, by the way. This is why the Bible is so adamant about us not being unequally yoked. Because inevitably, God's people will be the ones that are drawn away to compromise. The interesting thing is that they didn't fully abandoned their God. In fact, they remained with God. They remained God's covenant people. They remained worshiping God and remembering the Sabbath and doing their best to obey the commands, and yet they also worshiped other gods as well. And in their divided worship, they forfeited their blessing. And this is how Satan works. Not to get you to renounce Jesus completely, but just to bring in something else in the mix. I've been reading uh, The Pilgrim's Progress with my kids. It took us almost a year. We just finished like last week. And The Pilgrim's Progress is a story that follows the journey of a man named Christian on the Christian journey. It's a profound story. And it's really interesting how Bunyan describes the work of the devil in this story. In a lot of ways, it parallels what was happening in Pergamum. Christian, he's armed with his spiritual armor, and he's going through the valley of humiliation, and he's approached by this demonic figure named Apollyon. It's everything you could imagine the devil to be and worse. He's like a dragon. He's like throwing fire. He's attacking him, but he's got that little spiritual armor on, and he withstands against the enemy, and the enemy flies away, and he flees. Battle's over. But it's interesting, because almost immediately after this account, Christian and his fellow companions are forced to now travel through a city called Vanity. And Vanity has this fair that goes all year round. And it's where we get the term today, Vanity Fair. And at this fair, there's access to whatever pleasures you seek. Quote, silver, gold, titles, lusts, bodies, prostitutes, men, women, whatever it is you seek, it's here. Whatever you fancy, we've got it. And as they pass through, like an open market, like a flea market, each person is beckoning them to come in, pressuring them to come get a taste. Hey, it's acceptable here. Hey, it's it's totally okay. Keep your Christianity thing here. But we got more. What happens in vanity stays in vanity. I promise no one will know. Wooing them. What this highlights is that if Satan can't defeat us in over-attack, he'll acquire more successful tactics of bringing us down. And this is probably how he is working in many of our lives. And no matter what generation or where we find ourselves in the world, it is typically going to be through the same bait. So here it is. Through pleasure and compromise. If Satan's going to trip you up, here's what he's going to use. Pleasure compromise. He's going to appeal to our carnal appetites. And this is what was happening in Pergamum, specifically through the, the teachings of the Nicolaitans. We don't know a lot about the Nicolaitans, but what we do know is it was a highly sexualized cult group that was a part of the church. And the interesting thing about this group is they were not seeking to destroy the Christian church. They were seeking to modernize the Christian church. They were seeking to amend the teachings of the church, and specifically what the Bible taught about sexuality. They said that old stuffy Bible stuff about sexuality, about sex being between one man and one woman, and only for within the covenant of marriage—that's that's old. We live in a new society right now. This is a new first century. We're a part of this. Is the first century for goodness' sakes? Get with the times. They were not seeking to destroy the church. They were seeking to amend the church, to present a more culturally appropriate version that welcomed other alternative expressions, free love, pleasure, multiple uh, lovers, the redefinition of sex. Sound familiar? And essentially what they said is that you can love God and you can worship him and you can enjoy being a Christian. And here's the kicker you can also enjoy all the benefits of our society. We offer it all to you. Wealth, opportunity, sex. And here's the bonus, you get to keep your life. Because I guarantee if you follow our teachings, you're not gonna die for it. A little compromise here, a little compromise there, and I assure you, you will live. And like the Orwell illustration goes, the church was sucking on the jam Unaware of the dreadful thing that had happened. And here's the irony. They kept their head. But they severed their soul. They didn't lose their head for it. But they lost their soul in the mix. And so therefore, Jesus tells them, look with me in verse 16. Therefore, repent. Because if not, I'm going to come to you soon. And I'm going to war against them with the sword in my mouth. Okay? If there was ever a doubt about how Jesus feels about compromise coming into the church, seeking to redefine what Jesus has defined, let this settle it. I'm coming with a sword. I don't take this stuff lightly, Jesus is saying. The purity of my church is something I care about very highly. Now today, we may not have temples uh, to gods that we're tempted to frequent, but there are plenty of shrines that we frequented. And there are plenty of opportunities for us to begin to worship lesser things. And this is a call to the church. And I'm going to be really explicit with you. This is a call to us to abandon compromise, to abandon compromise, and to return to Jesus, and to recognize that Jesus calls us into fidelity, not just fidelity of mind, not just fidelity of heart but fidelity of mind, heart, body, and soul, all of us, all of us, is yours, Jesus. You guys still with me? I told you it was a hard word. Let's look finally at the promise. Like every other letter that we see in the book of Revelation uh, 2 and 3 to the churches, it ends with a promise, and I love this. Because this is what it tells us. It means that failure and unfaithfulness do not have the last word. Can I get an amen? Okay. This is a church that is failing big time. And yet Jesus says, this does not have to be your destiny. This does not have to be the truest thing about you. God's grace, God's healing, and God's forgiveness have the last word. So if you're feeling that heavy burden on your heart right now, you're not alone. And there's grace for you. There's forgiveness for you. And there's the promises of God for you. And here's what he promises. Look at me in verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Are you listening? He's what he's saying. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I'll give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, there's a few things to explain here briefly. But in the ancient times, uh, it was very common to send out these small little stones as invitations to festivals and the parties, the kind of parties that we would see at the temples in these different places in Pergamum, the kind of parties that the church would often have to be missing out on because of their convictions. And so these little stones were like a ticket of admission. If you got the stone, you were into the party. If you didn't get the stone, you were not a part of the party. And what Jesus is saying is this. While you now may be missing out on a lot of feasts and a lot of parties and a lot of pleasure and a lot of what's happening in your town right now. And you are often going to feel like an outsider, You're going to be passed on so many invitations. You're going to be passed on so many opportunities. And you're going to begin to question, was it worth it to choose not to compromise? What Jesus is saying, you're going to get the stone. In other words, I'm inviting you to something better. And what I'm inviting you to is a feast. And like the manna from heaven that we read about in, in the book of Exodus, this feast is not going to appear in the city And it's not going to appear in places of power. It's not going to appear in places of importance. It's going to appear in the wilderness. In other words, it's going to appear in the places of rejection and hurt. A feast that will not be noticed by the crowds. This is going to be a feast that's not recognized by culture. This is going to be a feast that is enjoyed in obscurity. This is going to be a feast that's going to appear insignificant to so many different people. And yet it's going to be of utmost importance, one that you are not going to want to miss out on, I promise. So, what feast is Jesus talking about? I think it's twofold. First, he's talking about the marriage supper of the Lamb. When it's all said and done, and heaven meets earth, and God restores this entire thing. It says we're all going to sit down on this at this long table with the diverse church all throughout the generations, and we're going to feast. And we're going to enjoy each other, and we're going to enjoy God, and we're going to enjoy creation as it was intended to be. And what Jesus is saying is, you're getting passed on so many feasts now, but trust me, you're not going to want to miss this party. But I think it's twofold. Many commentators believe that Jesus is also alluding to the Lord's table. That thing that we do every single Sunday that we gather The Lord's table is God's means of grace and and nourishment to our soul. This is where Jesus meets us. It's where we remember Jesus' death and his resurrection for our life and for our freedom. It's where we acknowledge that, that Jesus was rejected and Jesus was abandoned so that we could be welcomed to the table. The stone was rolled in front of Jesus, separating him from God so that the stone, the white stone, the invitation, To be extended to us. And what Jesus says is on that stone is a new name. And in the Bible, as you read through the Bible, almost every single time someone gets a new name, it means that they're receiving a new identity. When you get the stone, it's it's a representation that Jesus is redefining us. You are no longer defined by your past. You are no longer defined by your sin. You are no longer defined by the cultural pressures around you. You are no longer defined by by what you make yourself. You are defined by me. This is who I make you. This is who you are now. But it's interesting because when we get that stone with that name written on it, uh, the name has a little bit of mystery and secretiveness wrapped around it. He says, uh, a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Here's what I think that means. I think it means it's an identity that is not shouted from the rooftops, but whispered. What, what do you got to do to hear a whisper? You got to come in close. And here's what I think Jesus is saying is with this new identity comes a new Intimacy a new intimacy with Christ. And so with this invitation, is not just an invitation to a feast, but to nearness with Jesus. And, and like a spouse may give uh, you know, his bride like a secret term of endearment. This is a word just between you and me. This is a name that just you and I share. Jesus leans in and he whispers, this is who you are now. You're mine. You're my beloved. And here I believe is the key to this whole letter, if I may be so bold to say something like that. Here's the secret to what Jesus is saying. And it's the key to faithfully navigating the pressures of this world. It's the key to faithfully navigating a world with so many temptations and so many pressures to conform and so many pressures to compromise. Here it is. It's the invitation into true intimacy with Jesus, into his loving arms, and this is the kind of intimacy that we were created for. And if I could be so bold to say this about you, this is the kind of intimacy that you long for most, whether you know it or not. As it's been said before, the young man that knocks at the brothel is really looking for God. Here's the intimacy beneath all those journeys, all that seeking. That you've been on for your entire life. It's, it's, it's found here in the arms of Jesus. And what Jesus is saying is find everything you could ever want here with me. Listen to the words of C.S. Lewis. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong. You don't need to bridle your desires. Don't let anyone ever tell you that. But too weak. We are half hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Let's be honest, we are far too easily pleased. And so here is my closing exhortation to us, the church. Here's how I want to sum up our sort of response to what we've read this morning. The first is this. Remember who you are. This is what Jesus is doing all throughout these letters. He's reminding them of who they are and, more importantly, whose they are. I'm mindful of the story of the prodigal son. Takes his dad's money, had all, you know, half the inheritance. He goes off in reckless living. He hits rock bottom. His face is face-planted in a pig trough, which is the lowest of low for a Jewish boy. And he comes to his senses, and he thinks to himself, this is not who I am. And he remembers his father's home. That's what we need to do. When our face is face-planted in the pig slop of our lives, we need to remember, this is not who I am. This is not what God has called me to. This is not the life of the beloved. Remember who you are. Secondly, remain faithful to God as he has remained faithful to us. Here's the interesting thing. Jesus is not saying, hey, you guys need to get out of Pergamum. This place is getting crazy. He's saying, remain faithful to me there. So your answer to pressure is not escape. But running into the faithful arms of Jesus Christ, perhaps where you are. You don't need to flee for the hills, or perhaps more conservative state. Find what you need in Jesus. Last, refuse to settle. Refuse to settle for anything less than the unending joy found in the presence of God. We got a lot of pleasures in our life, we got a lot of things that we enjoy, but is it unending joy? Is it unending pleasure? Settle for nothing less. Hear these words of the psalmist and then I'm done. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Friend, what more could you ask for than this? Find it in Jesus. Find it in his presence. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for...